coming up on Ibogaine Uncovered. The way I say it over and over again is if you have a mind, you're going to have mental health struggles sometimes. And there's a ton of Christian counseling out there. There's a ton of people who you know make their living loving people in a way that is consistent with their faith tradition. And if this medicine is a way of helping that is coherent with that faith tradition, then yeah, people are wide open to trying to figure out how to implement that and incorporate that. And in a bunch of ways, the testimonies that we share in church historically about, hey, you know, the Lord saved me and changed my life and I quit drinking and I got clean, resemble the testimonies that we call anecdotal evidence in scientific studies. We call them case series or case studies, or, you know, we make it very sciencey whenever we publish about it. But what it really is, is a story of, hey, there was this one person that we really didn't expect anything good to happen to. And they got an exposure to this medicine and a whole bunch of things that were good happened to them. All right. Good morning, Doc Askins. Ben, Doc Askins, thank you so much for for joining me today. You're joining me from Kentucky, correct? That's correct. Longtime listener, first time caller. Oh, wonderful. So awesome to have you on the show. It was such a pleasure to meet you a couple of weeks ago in Kentucky. That was my first time in the Bluegrass State, and we were both there for the Breakthrough Summit on, or pardon me, the Summit on Breakthrough Therapies for Opioid Use Disorder. Now, technically, we met the evening before, seated around a a kitchen table, very like Southern hospitality vibes. It was pretty cool for a Canadian coming down to that state for the first time. And I love that we started talking about all sorts of things, substance use, mental health. We talked about psychedelics. We even talked about jujitsu. I was not expecting to have (laughs) a conversation with somebody about martial arts that evening. And so we, I recapped that event last on the last episode, but I wanted to take a moment and ask you a little bit about it. So you're born and raised in Kentucky, is that correct? Or you live there now? I was born uh, outside of Pittsburgh. Okay. And we bumped around a bunch growing up, but I've lived in Kentucky for since 2009. So okay, hot so it's very very much your home. Yeah. So you, I you own a farm the- here. <laughs> very cool. I remember talking about that with you. Your farm. Now, you were one of the only Kentuckians on the panels that day, and your story really struck a chord with me and many people in the room. Why was it important for you to be at that event on November 30th? Uh, That's a really excellent question that I've asked myself repeatedly as well. I'm not 100% sure the best answer. It's a unique situation going on here in Kentucky to be living here while there's a lot of eyes outside of the state paying real close attention to this Ibogaine initiative around whether or not to allocate $42 million of what's settlement money around the way in which Kentucky, particularly Eastern Kentucky, was targeted for setting up Oxycontin, what what we call pill mills around here, where the coal miners in Eastern Kentucky and the folks who are doing real hard blue collar work all across the state essentially came and said, no, we need help with our pain. And the solution was the long story short of the opioid crisis. We were ground zero for Dope Sick is a book and a, a Hulu series around it. There's a whole lot of documentaries now being put out telling that side of the story. And now the the Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission is considering allocating this money to treatments that are novel. Ibogaine, we'll get into this, I'm sure, much deeper in the, in the conversation. And you've had some of the big 
researchers in the Ibogaine space on this podcast already, like Dr. Deborah Mash, and uh, she spoke at the event as well. Just a very impressive lady with an incredible background in Ibogaine research. That there's all this attention essentially from all across the country and internationally focused on what's Kentucky going to do around this. And there's not a whole lot of folks in Kentucky who are aware that it's taking place. And to some degree, I just got rolled into it because of my association with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, last year. After being on a deployment to Kosovo for most of the year in the Kentucky Army National Guard, I came back and three months later did a training course with MAPS to be MDMA-assisted therapy certified to treat PTSD pending that medicine being rescheduled by the FDA hopefully next year. So through some of the associations, six degrees of separation around being in that training, I got into some of the same rooms with some of the people on the Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission and having those discussions behind closed doors about trying to raise awareness in the state of Kentucky about the uh, Ibogaine initiative and just educating the populace here, educating voters, educating patients, educating clinicians as a piece of that, decided to start my own podcast, which kind of has blown up recently. But a ton of the podcast is focused on mental health and psychedelic assisted therapy and just pulling the curtain back on a lot of the science and the research that's being published that I'm a nerd and love to read. And some of the just removing the stigma and removing the obstacles and the blocks to people being willing to pursue some novel treatment options. I'm just doing my part here in the bluegrass. And I witnessed that in the room as well, the way you're sort of able to use your story as a way to bring that stigma down to get people to sort of understand the purpose of these substances and how they're being used in people's lives lives. You touched a moment ago on Ibogaine, on some of the research going on around the substance, the potential research. And I read a piece that you wrote recently for Brains Magazine. You were talking about this proposition in Kentucky of $42 million being uh, set aside for Ibogaine research. You called it a terrible idea. And I like this because <laughs> you're the first person I've heard say it in this context. So without alluding to too much, I would love to have you elaborate on this a little bit. Why do you think allocating $42 million in Kentucky for Ibogaine research is a terrible idea? Yeah, I think it's a terrible idea, bottom line up front, because it's not enough money to run a single clinical trial. People see a number like $42 million and say, oh my God, that's so much money to allocate to this particular idea of researching a medicine that hasn't even really cleared phase two level data of clinical trials. And you're talking about trying to fund phase three stuff. That's, you know, getting things out of order. This is going to be really expensive. Couldn't that money be better spent elsewhere is a lot of the objections. Shouldn't we allocate this to harm reduction or to standard of care treatments that have better evidence behind them or to just increasing the infrastructure around uh, halfway houses and around the existing opportunities for supporting people who are struggling as a result of the opioid crisis? And my response to that is that the $42 million isn't even close to enough money to be able to run the clinical trial. It's seed money. The idea is if we allocated ourselves here, maybe we can raise funds to be able to actually run full-scale clinical trials and get the data. So it's, it's an interesting number to pick, $42 million. 
that it's big enough to draw attention and criticism from people who might be resistant to doing the studies for whatever a wide array of reasons that they might have, but it's also not big enough to actually accomplish the goal of being able to make a, a new drug application with the FDA. It's this middle piece and it's drawn a lot of attention from both sides of the political aisle here in Kentucky and drawn a lot of attention nationally and internationally in the news as well. So I wrote that piece in part because I'm aware of some of the history of psychedelics in the United States going back to the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'm a fairly well-read individual. And I'm a big Hunter S. Thompson fan. And Hunter liked to write in a fairly controversial way. He'd be real in your face about something to get your attention and then pull a sharp left-hand turn and use a little bit of logic to get his point across. And I like that writing style. I adopted a little bit here and there in some mm -hmm. of the articles that I've written and I dedicated my book to Hunter S. Thompson. And I said, it's a terrible idea. In the piece, I talk about, you know, like, why aren't they asking me my opinion about this? I live in Kentucky and I own a ketamine-assisted therapy clinic and I have an MDMA-assisted therapy certificate from the Multidisciplinary Association <laughs> for Psychedelic Studies. And the reason that they're not asking me, maybe it's a conspiracy theory. Maybe the attorney general doesn't want to, they want to suppress the voices of actual Kentuckians and they're just bringing in all these rich folk from New York to talk about it or whatever. But the truth is, I don't know that much about Ibogaine and that's why they shouldn't even bother asking me my opinion about it, right? And the people who do know the most about it are the ones who are saying, yes, we need to fund more studies. The people who are experts on Ibogaine say, yes, we need more money to run more clinical trials to get this across the goal line the same way people are looking at doing with MDMA and with psilocybin in the next year or so. So when I say it's a terrible idea, it's just to draw attention to the fact that it's really not that much money compared with what we spend on clinical trials. As I said on the stage and in the piece, I think we've demonstrated the national will with the COVID vaccine to run through Operation Warp Speed, spend $18 billion to get a vaccine through in, in approximately nine months to get FDA approval. If we wanted to address the opioid crisis with the same level of national will and funding, running clinical trials around some of these novel medicines, Ibogaine being one candidate among many for addressing this. Based on anecdotal reports in phase one and phase two clinical studies, it seems like the best candidate for addressing addiction. But again, we need a lot more money and a lot more funding and a lot more data to make those decisions on. And that's all anybody is asking for in the Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission is let's fund some studies to take a moonshot here. Like this, mm -hmm. yes, let's fund the stud, let's fund continuing tr standard of care treatments using what we know of, you know, opioid replacement therapies. And let's maximize, let's push all the buttons and maximize all of the treatments for which there's evidence. And then let's take a look at, there's the potential with these plant-based medicines to do a lot of good in a very short period of time. Why wouldn't we try to investigate that further? I feel like mm, the burden absolutely. of proof is on the objector rather than the people who are looking to make these funds in my reading of the literature. I would agree. And I think the issue that you bring up of funds, of it not being enough money to run a trial, speaks to psychedelics more broadly. This hype that we see that, oh, soon this is going to be available. And the reality is 
you know, like you said, usually this is like a five, 10 year process. But I like that you also brought up the if the political will is there, this is something we've already been able to do in other cases, which I think is an important, important thing to consider in this conversation. So in the same article that you say that as a clinician, you still have some questions about Ibogaine, which I think is fair given cardiotoxicity and these other issues that potentially come up with Ibogaine. What are some of those questions that you have? Yeah, the biggest question is the phase two data, right, is around figuring out safety and efficacy. Clinical trials get run all the time. The, the fact is most, the average person just doesn't understand how clinical trials are designed, funded, and run. And then if we could address some of just the gaps in familiarity with this, I think it would make sense to a lot more people to allocate the funding. So some of what I'm doing on my podcast is bringing researchers on who can explain some of these sorts of things. Cardiotoxicity is the biggest question mark still in ibogaine research. Why exactly do some people's hearts go into ventricular fibrillation as a result of taking high doses of ibogaine? Is it that they're susceptible to this previously and that good screening in a clinical trial or a clinical setting would prevent people from being in that situation? Is it a risk that's capable of being mitigated in the way that we mitigate risk uh, of QT interval prolongation, which is the medical terminology around what happens in the ventricles of the heart that allows electrical conduction to start skipping beats to the point that the heart just wiggles rather than pumps effectively. That QT prolongation is something that's a risk with lots of other medicines that we mitigate regularly. There's a clinical trial. There's some clinical data that's supposed to be coming out in the next couple of months by the primary investigator was Dr. Nolan Williams, and he was looking at whether or not we can stabilize the cardiac myocardium with high doses of magnesium. And when that study gets published, I'll be super eager to see what the results are around that. So the you know big question marks always with medicines at phase two is safety and efficacy. So what are the details around the safety of ibogaine, and are there ways to mitigate those risks uh, wisely, effectively, and thoroughly so that we could run the phase three clinical trials safely, and then find out the outcomes of larger scale exposures of people in you know, a placebo-controlled trial, according to the textbooks there, like what's the efficacy data once we know whether or not it's safe. Now, from my perspective, I, I may be a bit more risk tolerant than the average clinician as well, having been a combat medic for over a decade and having been through the military's inter-service physician assistant program, there's a lot of potential to see a lot more pathology and trauma than maybe the average clinician sees on a day-to-day basis. But especially in the mental health realm, coming from an emergency medicine, tactical medicine, wilderness medicine, expeditionary medicine background as an enlisted soldier, and then crossing over to being a physician assistant, we cardiovert people in the emergency room for all kinds of crazy reasons all the time. So if you have somebody on a monitor in a clinical trial, and you've done a great deal of appropriate screening, and you have better data around ways to stabilize the cardiac myocardium, maybe with magnesium, maybe in other ways, the risk begins to get lower and lower of having somebody go into ventricular fibrillation. And then a lot of the documented deaths of people who have taken ibogaine in high doses haven't been in 
a clinical trial setting, in an inpatient setting, in a research center, in a hospital, in a university. They've been out in the wild in a hotel somewhere on their own doing these sorts of things. So even if on the off chance that someone did go into ventricular fibrillation in a study, that doesn't mean that's the end and that someone has to die of that. If you're monitoring it closely enough, again, People get cardioverted in the emergency room every day, coming in the door on question mark, what did this person ingest a massive dose of? I don't know, but here's some electricity that's going to correct that in the meantime, Mm. right? To oversimplify what's a very complicated medical process. So to me, again, a lot of the objections to doing the studies in the first place don't hold water under close scrutiny. And a lot of the political objections to the funding also, again, I feel like the burden of proof should be on the other side around like, why wouldn't we allocate this relatively small amount of money towards figuring out some of these answers that could be uh, incredibly beneficial in reversing the opioid crisis? My my friend Brian Hubbard likes to say, maybe this West African medicine can heal some of the ills of Eastern Kentucky. You bring up an important point that I think is something I, I don't often think about, but I think it has to do with the fact that we sort of single out psychedelics. We still have this like idea that there are these scary, potentially dangerous things, and we forget that actually there's all sorts of other medications and procedures, like you just mentioned, that bring up some of those risks. And we've figured out ways to deal with them, so why would we not move forward. Yeah. And I really like the way you've said that the burden of proof should be on people who are objecting to studying and using these medicines. To my perspective, the reasonable comparator between what are the risks of someone using Ibogaine to treat opioid use disorder in a clinical trial setting or overseas where it's legal in multiple other countries, what's the comparator is not a healthy person walking in the door saying, hey, can I have some ibogaine for no good reason or for exploring the universe metaphysically or something? The comparator is people who are already dying of opioid overdoses or of suicide from the struggles with the somatic withdrawal symptoms. People whose lives are already in danger is the comparator Mm -hmm. to the risks of QT prolongation and ventricular fibrillation. We don't think of it in those terms a lot of the time, but you have to think of what the opportunity cost is. And the comparator is dying uh, much more quickly and much more painfully in uh, short form. And there are thousands of people mm-hmm. who that's their experience currently. Mm-hmm. What was it? I think it was 106,000 people in the United States in 2021 died of an overdose. I think the population of uh, Burbank, California or South Bend, Indiana, it's a lot of people. Yeah. It's a lot of people. I want to ask a little bit about how you found yourself working in this space. Now, you mentioned earlier MAPS uh, just submitted its new drug application for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. Um, you've been certified by a MAPS for MDMA-assisted therapy. And you write in uh, your book, The Antihero's Journey, which, by the way, pick it up. It's a great quick read. <laughs> Yeah, I'll Thank speak you. a little bit more on it later. and We can get into it a little bit as well. But you write in your book that, and this is kind of ironic, because in high school, you were straight edge, you were in uh, the D.A.R.E. club, you were everyone's designated driver. I love this. Uh, how did someone who was so against drugs end up working in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? Yeah, I had my first beer on my 21st birthday with my dad. Like, I was keeping all the rules. I'm like, these are the rules, and we're going to keep them. Raised real religious, conservative, Christian background, and the rules are important in that tradition, and I was going to 
try my best to keep them all, right? I guess the short version of it is that I lost a friend to suicide while I was in the clinical year of physician assistant school. And I was looking at probably a career in emergency medicine because I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie. I like getting high naturally, like rock climbing and those sorts of things. But that loss, and I shared some of the story at the, the MAPS event there here at Beck and LaGrange a couple weeks ago. You know, I lost a friend and then I wound up treating an overdose in the emergency room at Fort Campbell in very short order. And it just gutted me. Why are people dying by suicide? And is there something that can be done about that? And I had no idea, you know, the complexities of what's going on with any of that, but something inside me just gave way. It was something that like, sometimes you find your calling in life, half of it winds up being about things that break your heart and half of it maybe winds up being about the things that bring you the greatest joy. And the things that bring me the greatest joy are my wife and my kids and my family and making the world 1% better for them is something that brings me to life. And then the thing that breaks my heart is just people die in deaths of despair, people suffering that greatly that, that they are willing to override what is one of the strongest drives in the human nervous system is the drive to survive, right? People fight tooth and nail to not be killed by uh, you know, another person in a violent situation and to be able to overcome that instinct, the amount of pain and suffering and how long that has to go on for is just overwhelming. And is there stuff that we can do about that? I wanted to understand what can we do? And I just felt like a calling at that time. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know how I was going to approach it. I got out of school and got hired straight out of school into a psychiatry practice that a friend of mine, Dr. Bob Stewart here in Louisville, Kentucky, hired me into. And he was doing ketamine-assisted therapy outpatient in his office at that point because he's a, a great researcher. He stays on the cutting edge of what's available in mental health treatments. And he was starting to do ketamine-assisted therapy in 2017 in his own office wow. there, which is just light years ahead of everybody else. And I was fortunate enough to learn how to do a bunch of that from him. And I'm a nerd, so I did a whole bunch of my own reading around exactly how could we optimize this? How could we improve this? And that uh, is the long and the short of how I got into pursuing psychedelic-assisted therapy was this seems like it has a lot of robust evidence behind it. And then I got to see firsthand in treating patients under the COVID pandemic. I graduated from PA school January 2020, got my license in February, and the world shut down in March. And then a whole bunch of the patients that we would have wanted to send to a 72-hour hold in the hospital because of their level of suicidality, it just didn't seem safe because of COVID to put them in the hospital. So I wound up managing a great deal of those patients with Dr. Bob in an outpatient setting that might not have been the norm otherwise. And it wound up working very effectively. So I got involved because the evidence drove me that way. I didn't, I haven't had my own ketamine assisted therapy until very relatively recently, right? I went to the MAPS training to do MDMA assisted therapy. And one of the therapists in my small group pulled me aside and was like, Hey, you've never done any medicine, have you? And I was like, do I stick out that much like a sore thumb? Like, 
big ugly white guy is obviously the narc. Okay, fair. I get it. Like I, I fit the profile. You're act, but you're and you're right. I've never done any of this stuff. So I had a ton of my own struggles from being in the military. I had developed an alcohol problem over time. That's kind of part of the culture there where you're just going to drink about your problems until you kill the brain cells associated with that memory. And that's part of just how we do things here. We don't talk about the problems and we just drink about the problems. And if you weren't there, we don't talk about it. And if you were there, those are the only people you talk to about it. And I was providing this life-saving therapy to all sorts of people for two years without having any experience of it myself. And then, you know, I went to my doctor and talked about, hey, can I is this appropriate for me? And they thought that it was and went through the process of having ketamine assisted therapy myself. And it was life changing for me. You know, alcohol is just boring. Now it's just a boring substance. I'm not even interested. It tastes awful. Why does anybody do this? I don't understand. I'm right? with you on that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that, so I, I got into it because of the evidence. I got into it because I wanted to help. And now I'm all the way into it and a believer that this is going to help so many people in so many ways. Like it's unparalleled in the, the clinical trial data coming out around MDMA assisted therapy. There's really good data around ketamine for suicidality, for alcohol use disorder in combination with appropriate therapies. There's just the potential. Stan Groff, the famous LSD researcher from the Czech Republic, liked to say that the way that the telescope was for astronomy and the way that the microscope was for biology, psychedelics are going to be for psychology. There's a whole bunch of ways that we're going to be able to do, not just help people who are struggling with pathology, but just discover more about what it means to be human in the first place so that we can stabilize, heal, optimize, and thrive as a species. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that piece about your experience with ketamine. You you write also about another ketamine experience you had in your book that was a little bit of a mistake. You were treating a national troop and a colleague mistakenly jabbed you with a hefty dose of ketamine. And you joke <laughs> you, you joke in the book that he's inoculating you against PTSD in this moment. Now, I don't mean to open this with a joke. But I do want to touch on this. The topic of PTSD, veterans, psychedelics is huge right now. I know it's a very big discussion in the United States. It's happening across the border up here in Canada as well. PTSD rates kind of range. We don't know for sure among veterans, anywhere between 5 and 32%, depending on when they served. Now, as an active member of the Army National Guard, what is your stance on making psychedelic-assisted therapy available to men and women who've served their country and might be dealing with PTSD and combat-related trauma. Yeah, I'm very hopeful that it will become standard of care as soon as possible. I don't know what the timeline on that looks like, but I could see a world in my lifetime where a part of the reintegration process from a deployment involves the opportunity for doing psychedelic-assisted therapy around just the difficulties of deploying. Even if you go on a non-combat deployment, there are immense stressors placed on you and on your family. And we don't do a very good job of allowing people the opportunity to reintegrate home again. And MDMA-assisted therapy, all the best data so far is around PTSD, as it should be. But there's the potential. There's data going back into the 70s, and there's some clinical trials being designed 
and enrolling currently around couples therapy. The opportunity for the spouse that stays home and the soldier that deploys to then reintegrate through couples MDMA assisted therapy. I think that would be like, it's something that chokes me up to imagine the potential for so many of my friends and the people that I love to experience something like that with the, their closest loved ones as a way of coming all the way home. There's just tons of ways that right now the risks are so high of people coming home from a deployment of any kind and being stressed out and their lives being upended. National Guard deployments are, are written for 400-day orders a lot of the time. Like imagine leaving your family for 400 days time. because of your part-time job calling you up full-time to go someplace else. And I have friends here in Kentucky who've done that six, seven, eight times. Wow. You know, I haven't served at that level at all. But those are the people who, in my opinion, deserve to be at the front of the line for implementing and integrating some of these sorts of things. So the studies are there, the science is there, getting this football across the goal line as far as getting FDA rescheduling and approval around all of those sorts of things, and then figuring out the way that this can be implemented in the Department of Defense, in the VA system, in those sorts of ways. There are already a lot, there's already a lot of openness to non-traditional options for treatment, right? For the folks for whom SSRI and therapy works, great. But there's always those this stepwise algorithmic progression that we all as mental health clinicians go through. And where does it this fit into that algorithm? I'd be excited to be a part of those sorts of conversations. We have what are called NICO, National Institute or uh, Centers of Excellence, on a lot of the active duty posts. I did rotations in the traumatic brain injury clinic on Fort Campbell when I was in phase two of IPAP in physician assistant school, where they're implementing a lot of super interesting cutting edge uh, therapies there. They're using ketogenic diets and exogenous ketone supplements to try to address the metabolic energy deficits that result secondary to concussions and TBIs and having a TBI protocol where somebody gets a trial of the ketogenic diet. They're doing balance addressing therapy. They've got neuro-ophthalmologists. The neuro-ophthalmologist down there is an awesome lady where there's just all these ways to address problems with your central nervous system that they're looking to implement. And it seems to me that NICO would be uh, a great opportunity to start looking at implementing ketamine-assisted therapy or MDMA-assisted therapy. But, you know, building the infrastructure around that, getting the training in all of those sorts of places, I, all of those things are way above my pay grade for sure. Mm -hmm. But I'd be interested in playing my part or answering questions or doing whatever I could to try to bring the best evidence-based medicines to the people who need it the most. Okay. So as of right now, you're working with ketamine. If and when this medicine, MDMA, passes the goal line, as you mentioned, do you think that's going to be a medicine you're working with in your office as well? Maybe facilitating couples therapy, that kind of thing for veterans? Do you find yourself or see yourself in the future kind of working in that space as well? Yeah. So far as we know, my supervising physician, Dr. Kristen Dawson, and I are the only two prescribers in the state of Kentucky who've gone through MAPS therapist training. Now, mm -hmm. they'll roll out some different rules eventually around what it looks like to be a prescriber and then what it looks like to do the therapy. And there's a very unique way that therapy was designed to be done in the clinical trials that involves a co-therapy dyad and an MDMA 
medicine session is, you know, a six to eight hour experience for a patient. And there's a lot of therapy that goes in preparation and in integration around those medicine sessions. In the clinical trials, it was upwards of 40 plus hours of co-therapy. So 80 plus hours of therapist time in three medicine sessions. The study data around that is amazing. People with some of the most severe treatment-resistant PTSD, two-thirds of them no longer meet diagnostic criteria for PTSD in the first place. And I got to talk to some of the researchers when I was in the training. What about that other third? What's the deal Mm. there? What's going on with them? And their suggestion was just, it's not that the other third is resistant to this. It's just that maybe they needed four sessions or five sessions or six Mm, sessions because of the particular struggles that person's having. And a clinical trial may not be A clinical trial is never the same as rolling this out into the community, right? It looks different out there. So there'd be the potential to have much better outcomes than there are in the clinical trial. And the clinical trial demonstrates much better outcomes than anything we've ever seen in the history of psychiatry. Wow. Okay. So you've been in the National Guard, you are involved in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, and you have also been to seminary. I have to ask you about this. I'm also (laughs) a reformed church kid. Grew up going to church every Sunday, all the rules. I veered left as a teenager, but we don't have to get into that. Um, So you you also (laughs) write in your book, and this made me laugh so hard. I even took a screenshot of it and shared it on Instagram. You write, I have a Master of Divinity degree. God, what a cocky title. Who comes up with this shit? (laughs) Now, during that event in Kentucky, a lot of people pointed out you included this sort of elephant in the room, this idea that something as progressive and potentially cutting edge as Ibogaine could be studied in a place as uh, conservative and dare I say fundamentalist as Kentucky. (laughs) You shared that pastors and professors and all sorts of folks who you wouldn't expect are in your DMs asking you about psychedelics. Now, this to me indicates shifting of perception that we haven't seen before. People to me don't seem as afraid of psychedelics as they once were uh, in the USA. And that was illustrated so well for me in Kentucky a few weeks ago. Why do you think that is? Why is public perception shifting? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot that goes into that, at least in in my understanding of a lot of the religious history of Kentucky. Like there's a revivalist tradition here in Kentucky. There's a, you know, a lot of faith and a lot of belief and a lot of hope uh, and mm-hmm. trust in God here that's valuable and meaningful and worthwhile. I'm, I tongue in cheekily do a little Hunter S. Thompson style writing around religion and around theology in my book, but I'm, I'd still describe myself as a Christian. I'm very fascinated with the mysteries of the universe and what is the purpose of being here in the first place and why do we suffer and all of those big questions that philosophers and theologians spend a lot of time trying to find answers to. And and just average Joe's care deeply about as well, right? We all want to know the meaning of life and the purpose and all of those sorts of things. I'm an Eastern Orthodox Christian. I still go to church. You know, it's still meaningful and valuable to me. And I like that tradition and I'm a member of it because it honors mystery, because it honors that there is a mystery that you can call God, you can call source, you can call whatever you want to call it in your own various traditions. But it does the best job, as far as I can tell, of honoring the fact of that mystery in a, a, a humble and worshipful sort of way. So that's why I stay uh, a part of that 
faith tradition. Here in Kentucky, like there, it wasn't that long ago that they made snake handling illegal, right? And how well they enforce snake handling churches and charismatic churches. There's a deep faith here in Kentucky that's willing to take risks based on that faith, right? Willing to demonstrate, yeah, uh, I believe in God and I'll handle this rattlesnake and I'll, I'll prove it to everybody here in the room that I have faith. And the science that's being rolled out behind psychedelics has caught everyone's attention that these medicines are capable of producing remarkable amounts of healing has everybody's interest, right? And people who might have been skeptical just a few years ago or people who might have been adamantly opposed to the idea are starting to warm up to the idea of, hey, what exactly is going on in my brain whenever I take these? What exactly was it, you know? That's going on. So yeah, I have people who from seminary, guys that I was in class together with, that we were just trying to figure out how to translate Hebrews from Greek into English together, doing our homework, heads down, figuring that stuff out that are reaching out to me and saying, hey, what's what are you doing now? What's this whole psychedelic thing. Like you disappeared for a few years and now you pop back up again on social media and you're talking all about ketamine and mushrooms and all of that stuff. What does that mean? Seminary professors and pastors of churches, like everybody, like I, the way I say it over and over again is if you have a mind, you're going to have mental health struggles sometimes. And there's a ton of Christian counseling out. There's a ton of people who you know make their living loving people in a way that is consistent with their faith tradition. And if this medicine is a way of helping that is coherent with that faith tradition, then yeah, people are wide open to trying to figure out how to implement that and incorporate that. And in a bunch of ways, the testimonies that we share in church historically about, hey, you know, the Lord saved me and changed my life and I quit drinking and I got clean. Resemble the testimonies that we call anecdotal evidence in scientific studies. We call them case series or case studies or, you know, we make it very sciencey whenever we publish about it. But what it really is is a story of, hey, there was this one person that we really didn't expect anything good to happen to and they got an exposure to this medicine and a whole bunch of things that were good happened to them. And that's a little bit of signal. It's not strong evidence. Coming back to some of what you were asking about ketamine and PTSD before, ketamine historically was a darling of corpsmen and combat medics in the Vietnam War because of how safe a medicine it is and it is an anesthetic. You can give a high dose of ketamine to somebody who has been injured in a blast or shot and it doesn't affect respiratory drive, so they stay breathing. And it doesn't have a negative effect on cardiac output like a lot of other anesthetics do. And then my friend Dr. Andrew Fisher published a case series around looking at people who receive ketamine at point of wounding in the global war on terrorism. Do they have lower rates of PTSD later on? Now, like high-level, robust, prospective evidence hasn't been published around that yet. But case series is that suggest, yes, if you give ketamine early enough in pain management for someone who's been severely injured in combat, they may be less likely to develop this constellation of symptoms that we call post-traumatic stress disorder later on. So is there the potential for interrupting the development of PTSD if you were in a motor vehicle accident, if you were in a home invasion, if you were in a traumatizing situation as a civilian? Could a single ketamine-assisted therapy session within a short period of time after that be something that 
prevents you from developing PTSD later on. We don't have strong enough evidence to say conclusively that's the case, but what we understand of how you develop PTSD in the first place and what we understand about how ketamine interrupts some of those things suggests that it deserves uh, further look in terms of research. And then I have people in my clinic who I do this with already, and I think it's reasonable to do because briefly, PTSD is two things. First, it's a problem of overlearning. You have a memory that you get wired in too tightly. And now what would normally be a balloon popping that doesn't scare you and bring you into a hyperarousal mode, the neurotransmission around experiencing that loud noise gets carried through a fear circuit in your brain where it, it didn't used to. You overlearn a memory around that sound so that now it produces hyperarousal. And then all of your memories are subject to elimination. And it's a problem of memory elimination later on. You don't remember what you had for lunch two months ago. You eliminated that memory. Your brain pruned it. And your brain doesn't prune this overlearned traumatic memory. Now, getting a, high, a, a sub-anesthetic dose of ketamine may be something that prevents overlearning or supports memory elimination around that so that essentially like the way I describe it in the book is you've got this memory library and it's haunted by ghosts and you go looking for an old family photo album and this ghost yanks this traumatic memory off of a different shelf and hits you in the back of the head with the book. And all you're trying to do is you know, go about your life. What ketamine potentially and some other medicines, there's decent suggestions around beta blockers as well, being able to do some of these sorts of things can help you just put that memory on the shelf so that it stays on the shelf and it only shows up whenever you go looking for it instead of the memory haunting you in its place. I think that you know, there's a there's sufficient evidence to look at implementing that for people to try to either prevent PTSD in the first place or to interrupt the early phases of developing PTSD afterwards. But again, a ton of that is dependent on a treatment plan, right? The study protocols for where there's the most robust evidence for ketamine use is in treatment-resistant cases, right? Somebody who's had failed trials of multiple SSRIs and augmentation with antipsychotics and, 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 and then as a last resort, hey, do we try ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, or TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, or DBS, installing a deep brain stimulator surgically in their brain, or do we do ketamine-assisted therapy? And I think it makes sense from my perspective, given the total picture of risk and benefits and alternatives, to start to use ketamine-assisted therapy much earlier in the treatment progression for patients than has been the historical way of using it. You bring up treatment-resistant depression. Now, I feel like, you know, this has been something that's been on the rise since COVID, even before then. I think our mental health as a as a whole in North America is just suffering for many reasons. I mean, the, the suicide rate is on the rise. About 132 Americans a day are committing suicide in the U.S. that men outnumber women by nearly four times. I think that's important to mention as well. Now, you've seen firsthand how mental health and substance use are intertwined. You've shared that this is why you have chosen to be in this field. How might a ketamine treatment like the ones that you offer help someone through that really challenging moment? Yeah, there's really good evidence for 
uh, very rapid, very robust anti-suicidal property to ketamine that we don't fully understand pharmacologically and neurochemically at this point. The What's going on in a suicidal brain is difficult to try to map out. And like I'd mentioned earlier, like the willingness to overcome your survival instincts is a very unusual, what I like to call headspace. If you can get into the mindset of being willing to complete that action, that level of self-harm, sometimes violent, sometimes nonviolent, but what's going on for somebody in that state biologically and psychologically is extremely unique. Biologically, what we've discovered is that there's a lot of neuroinflammation that may be occurring for a wide array of reasons. And ketamine is intensely anti-inflammatory systemically. There are clinical trials that have used ketamine as a rescue medicine for the, the respiratory syndrome secondary to the worst cases of COVID because it just crushes out inflammation uh, and stops that cascade. So to the degree that neuroinflammation might be a piece of what's going on biologically for somebody who is in a suicidal headspace, ketamine very rapidly extinguishes that inflammation. The other thing that we know that's going on in a lot of postmortem studies of suicidal brains is that there's this very high ratio of what's called quinolinic acid to kynanuric acid, which is a serotonin is a downstream metabolite of kynanuric acid pathway. And kynanuric acid is neuroprotective and quinolinic acid is neurotoxic. So you have through whatever methods, a much higher level of something that's neurotoxic being built up in the brain. And ketamine also essentially trips a switch that directs a lot more energy, a lot more tryptophan towards the kynanuric pathway, kynanuric acid pathway, rather than the quinolinic acid pathway. So breaking up those two things, neuroinflammation and reducing the amount of the quin to kyna ratio is what we call it, is what's going on biologically through the use of ketamine to interrupt suicidality at a neurobiological level. And then there's the phenomenology of a ketamine experience has the potential to be something that could be either destabilizing or very stabilizing depending on the quote unquote set and setting, right? If we just dose somebody with a high dose of ketamine to try to put them to sleep because they're acutely suicidal and violent in an emergency room, that may not be the ideal set and setting. To have a positive experience in the quote unquote ketamine space. But if you have the opportunity, like in an outpatient setting where I work with still very acutely suicidal people, sometimes you get the opportunity to do some very good therapy around the experience rather than a much more you know, violent setting. You do what you can with what you got when you're working in the emergency room. It's a whole different animal than here in my office where we're recording the podcast. But there's the potential then psychologically or therapeutically to do a lot of good work around. So what are the drivers? What drove you to this level of desperation? Or what are the environmental circumstances? What are the internal ways that you're thinking about yourself that led you towards this level of suicidality? So we can start putting the pieces together again. And a ton of that, like that's none of that's magic. None of that's me special to, you know, old doc here. It's the collaborative assessment and management of suicidality by the book CAMS 
developed by Dr. David Jobes and his team, is a, an excellent manualized intervention for acute suicidality. And then combined with ketamine-assisted therapy, it allows for a reset neurobiologically that the therapy alone can take upwards of three months to implement, but we do in our offices here in Kentucky in two to three weeks. Taking people who are 10 out of 10 suicidal when they come in the door, families dragging them in here as a last resort to see us, and two or three weeks later, they're not just not suicidal, they're not just undepressed, they want to live, they're, hey, you know, I think I want to lose 15 pounds and I'm going to go back to school is how they, they leave. Uh, which is you know, very different from what we see in a lot of the standard of care at this point. And I'm, I'm not sure why everybody doesn't know this, why everybody's not reading the same journals that I'm reading. There's nothing, again, special about me or about any of the stuff that I'm doing here. Like this is stuff that's in print published all over the place. And for whatever reason, it hasn't gotten the uh, level of attention or the level of publicity yet to be able to be implemented as standards of care uh, the way that I think that they should be. But again, a bunch of those decisions are way above my pay grade. In Kentucky, we talked a little bit about the window after a psychedelic treatment. And this could apply to most psychedelics. We were talking specifically about Ibogaine. Now we're going to talk about ketamine, but that window where you really need to take care of yourself. And I believe you described it as uh, akin to having a baby's brain. You need to treat your brain like you're a child after this experience. So how do you advise your clients after treatment? What sort of integration and self-care activities do you suggest to help people make the work that they've done in your chair stick? Yeah, the I, I like using that analogy because it makes sense to most people. The idea that you, after you've had a psychedelic, there's this plastic period. You had the researcher on the podcast previously that had done some of the studies in octopuses for MDMA. Mm, and they turned Dr. Gould Dolan. Usually yeah. Antisocial. Yes. Yeah. Antisocial octopuses that usually just kill each other when they see each other out of like <laughs> boredom or something. They don't even hate each other. They're just, yeah, you know, it's an octopus. I'll pull it apart. And they turn into cuttlefish and they want to touch each other and they love each other. And there's this plastic period that uh, she had described there, where you have levels in your brain of brain-derived neurotrophic factor and other factors that are upregulated that allow for the growth of new neurons and making new connections and allowing you to essentially do a pitch out around fear circuitry and to connect to love and meaning and executive function in the prefrontal cortex in new ways that wouldn't have been available otherwise. So you have this biological platform built from which then you can make new habits, have a new way of relating to yourself and to others and to the environment, be, and you're open to that, seeing the world in, in a whole bunch of new ways. And I like to call it having a baby brain because the last time that the level of these factors were as high as they are in your brain was probably whenever you were a very young child or whenever you were a, a neonate or even being a bun baked in your mom's oven in the first place. So there's essential cofactors to supporting brain health and all of those you should bring into the picture. I give the example of folate because we have the best, most robust evidence around that. That's why prenatal vitamins have high doses of folate in them is because if you're going to turn from a neurodevelopmental tube into a person, you need a, a great deal of folate to make that possible. Well, what's folate in? Well, you can buy a pill that has folate in it, or you could eat a lot of spinach. There's a whole lot of folate in spinach, right? So one of the recommendations I'll make in clinic after you've had your first ketamine 
treatment is to start eating a whole lot more plants. Get uh, a wide variety of whole foods into your diet. That the standard American diet is insufficient for supporting the new neurons that your brain is trying to grow through this medical intervention. So, what I look at, what we look at in our clinics here, is trying to optimize somebody's whole life, and that begins with the intake. Like we do a, a whole life intake. The way that I like to do an intake is a bit unique. Instead of walking by the book through like symptom management sorts of stuff. I start with just tell me your story. How can I help you and get a big picture, right? I have some training along the way. Like I have such a goofy background that I've gotten some training in like hostage negotiation and human intelligence collection. And there's ways to ask questions that are leading questions that are going to give you the answers that you're looking for. And there's ways to ask questions that are open-ended that allow somebody to provide a whole bunch of details for themselves. And we lean more towards the open-ended way of doing an intake here. So, hey, tell me your story. It gets me a lot more valuable information about what's going on with a person. And then I can drill down from there rather than starting with like exactly how long have you been depressed or something that mm. is a lot more focused questions. So getting to hear what somebody's story is, I'm listening very carefully for the sorts of things that are going to be drivers of health that they already have in their life. And then the sorts of obstacles to health that they've got that maybe we could maximize certain things and minimize other things, right? What kind of exercise do you like to do? What's something that you're actually going to stick to rather than saying, Hey, you need to start lifting weights and you need to get, you know, 180 minutes a week of cardiovascular, you know, fitness activity or blah, 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 whatever the usual textbook standard statement is. We do the inventory and we say, what are the blockers to you getting a good night's sleep? Are you watching Netflix until 10 seconds before you fall asleep at two o'clock in the morning every night? Maybe if we stop exposing your eyes to light, you'll be able to naturally upregulate melatonin and we can get you off of that ambient that you've been on for the last 15 years or whatever. I do a lot of rational de-prescribing in clinic here where very safely, very carefully, we taper people off of medicines because the healthy habits that they're implementing around diet, around exercise, around relationships, around spirituality, around sleep, around all the things that it means to be human starts to help somebody be healthy in a way that, hey, maybe we could half your antipsychotic and see how you do. Hey, maybe being in therapy on the regular with a therapist that you connect well with, we can start tapering your antidepressant. And there, I have patients who have been on medicines for three and four decades that we get all the way off all of their medications sometime. Now, we do that slowly. We do that safely. We do that rationally. But they're incredibly pleased with the amount of progress that they're able to make in a very short period of time using ketamine, using good therapy, and just optimizing all of the science behind the activities of daily living that are going to help that person. If they like yoga, do yoga. If they like weightlifting, do weightlifting. I don't care about the difference, but I'm figuring out what is something they're actually going to stick with. And then we haven't been able to invent an exercise pill yet. The amount of things that just getting exercise on a regular basis does for you in terms of preventing chronic disease and promoting mental health it's unparalleled, right? If somebody can figure out how to put exercise in a pill, they're going to be the next big pharma billionaire or whatever, but we haven't been able to figure out how to do that. So in the meanwhile, you should start jujitsu, start folding clothes with people in them, right? 
Involuntary yoga. Yeah, if you're listening to the show, I'm nodding very hard. Murder yoga. <laughs> Murder yoga. Yeah, I think I think it's so critical that having that piece of your life where you know you alluded to it earlier, getting high naturally on your own physicality, on on using your body in a way that's challenging. I think in those moments where we push ourselves, whether it's yoga or CrossFit or jujitsu, that's really where, for me personally, I, I meet myself in a way that I have never met myself before on those edges. And I think it's a, a really similar space that people are in when they're on medicine. I think what's really interesting about the process that you're describing is a psychedelic is sort of like a catalyst for someone it can help them realize that they're worthy of having these healthy lifestyles of, of feeding their body good food and doing physical things, not because they have to look a certain way, but because it's good for their brain. Yeah. yeah I feel like it's regurgitated over and over, but it has to be because it's so damn important. <laughs> yeah. Well, and ultimately there's, we're just talking about different ways of getting into non-ordinary states of consciousness is what totally. you know, transpersonal mm -hmm. psychology is the, the terminology for it. Right. And psychedelics are a way of inducing a non-ordinary wow. state of consciousness, but there are so many ways. Awe, just awe standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon is a non-ordinary state of consciousness for those of us that don't live on the rim of the Grand Canyon, right? Being yeah. in a jujitsu match and being able to trust someone who is on the verge of choking you unconscious that they will mm -hmm. let you go because you tap their shoulder three times <laughs> is a non-ordinary state of consciousness for people who aren't professional MMA fighters on a regular basis, right? There's all these ways. I was on Rocco Vargas's podcast recently and we talked about how close quarters combat is a non-ordinary state of consciousness. Your heart oh, rate yeah. goes up over 200. You have auditory exclusion. You have tunnel vision. You have all of these non-ordinary states of consciousness that it doesn't require a psychedelic to get into, but there are ways that those non-ordinary states can be destabilizing and there are ways that they can be stabilizing. There are ways that they can be, you know, produce post-traumatic stress and there are ways that they can induce post-traumatic growth and resiliency. And we want to optimize mm -hmm. as many of the ways that it's going to promote resiliency and minimize the number of ways that it's going to be stressful. Totally. I love that phrase, post-traumatic growth. Doc, you've been so generous with your time. I have one more question for you and I have to ask it because it's about your book. So in your book, The Antihero's Journey, which when we met, you described it to me as like a psychedelic, but a book, which I thought <laughs> at first I was a little bit confused. And then I was like, I really want to read this book. So you argue <laughs> in the book that everyone's greatest fear isn't actually death, but the belief that they are nothing. And I'm going to quote you here. You say, I am no one, nothing, zero, zilch, zip, without, not, empty, worthless, not a hero, not a sidekick not a villain, not a victim, not a bystander, not even the background, not even the ground behind and beneath the background, nothing. You write, once you realize you're nothing, then you can do anything. This is a pretty bold statement coming from someone like you who has a very eclectic background. How has that statement, once you realize you're nothing, then you can do anything, informed your life and your work? Yeah, it's, it's ultimately about facing fear, right? Whatever that is for the individual. And what I was trying to do there is go after what is my greatest fear, right? And what I imagine to be potentially the greatest fear that anyone could face is the idea that you 
you know, this, this existential crisis of meaninglessness and being nothing is the sort of thing that I hear about in suicidal people as well. Like that I'm worthless, I'm valueless, I'm meaningless, the whole thing's nothing. And if you can face that fear head on, then there's all these lesser fears that you really don't need to be as afraid of anymore. The way I came out the other side of that thought experiment for myself was that my mission in life is to embody all of life's paradoxes in a way that overcomes fear with love, which is something straight out of the biblical tradition, right? That perfect love casts out fear that you learn about in Sunday school. And you get taught some of these things, but you don't catch them and take them all the way to heart maybe until later on. The idea with the book is that eight out of 10 adults say that they've never taken a psychedelic, but that they're curious about it, but they're illegal in most states and they're risky. Like what's, what is it going to happen to me? Is am I going to change my mind? Is this going to make me crazy? Is there, there's all this stuff. So I tried to write a book that would be like a psychedelic assisted therapy session. If I did psychedelic assisted therapy on myself as a professional with training to do this and with thousands of hours of experience doing it with acutely suicidal people. But if I told my own life story in a way that resembles having taken a psychedelic. So the book's a bit of a trip. It's crazy at points. But it would be a way that would be low risk and very safe for people to have as a gateway, as a way to get into what can you expect to experience? What can you see it might be like to be in a psychedelic assisted therapy session? If you start to get nauseous, if you start to get double vision, if you start to cry uncontrollably while you're reading the book or listening to the audio book, you can just put it down. You can go outside. You can get a breath of fresh air. LSD can't promise you that. If you take a psychedelic substance, you bought your ticket, and you're going to ride the ride until the ride's over, right? But if you want to get a feel for what it's like to have a psychedelic-assisted therapy session, a peek behind the curtain, you can just read my very short, very slim book of 50 pages with pictures, right? And maybe you'll come out the other side feeling the way that I feel, where love does overcome fear. And that's what I'm hopeful for is that Mm. the world will be a lot more loving place and driven a lot less by fear just by virtue of this book getting out there. Well, I can certainly attest to the fact that it is a very psychedelic read and it has given me, yeah, some, some things to think about. Doc, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show, for sharing your expertise with the audience. I really appreciate you being here. And I hope that we get to chat again in the future. Maybe once the vote passes in Kentucky on Ibogaine, we'll see. Thank you so much. Yeah, I would love that. It's been a pleasure. My name is Amanda Siebert, and you're listening to Ibogaine Uncovered, the podcast that explores the impact of one of the most powerful psychedelic medicines on the planet. Can Ibogaine really get to the root of our trauma? Join me as I ask practitioners, patients, researchers, and specialists about their experiences. You've been listening to Ibogaine Uncovered. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify and Apple, leave a review, or share it with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by Beyond and produced by Eamon Armstrong, mixed by Trevor Coulter and edited by Ariel Villafane. Beyond is the world's premier network of medically-based Ibogaine treatment facilities for addiction, depression, anxiety, and PTSD. 
Beyond's mission is to help people end chemical and behavioral dependency and to end the suicide epidemic with psychotherapeutic treatment and psychedelic plant medicine innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical advice and does not necessarily reflect Beyond's views on mental health treatment or personal development. For inquiries and further information, please visit beyondibogain.com and make an inquiry using the web form or email beyond at hello at beyondibogain.com.